Hi everyone and welcome to the TIPBS podcast. Uh, I'm your host Dr. Gavin Krishnamurti. I'm joined as always with Dr. K.A. Hi Kay. Hello Gavin, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're rev- this is a book review um, episode. We're reviewing the book, The Whole Brain Child, and we're looking at chapter three, which is building the staircase of the mind, integrating the upstairs and downstairs brain, just chapter three. So what did you think of this chapter, Kay? Um, this chapter I actually thought um, was um, very easily applied to a classroom teacher's daily practice. So I found it very useful and quite um, practical mm. in its application to what we do each day, yeah. Yeah. So the previous chapter, we looked at um, what he calls horizontal integration, which is looking at integrating the left and the right brain. And if people haven't heard that, um, it's in our previous episode. Um, now, this episode, we're looking at integrate vertical integration, which is linking the bottom parts of the brain um, that um, are responsible for more vital functions like breathing and blinking and um, the fight or flight reactions, the innate reaction and impulses but also strong emotions. Um, So parts of the brain like the amygdala, the brainstem, um, and being able to integrate how that functions with the higher level brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is where we do our thinking, the planning, imagining, a lot of those higher level functions. Um, And so he talks about the um, top level of the brain being still uh, incomplete and in the works with, kids that it hasn't matured yet and that he describes the amygdala as the baby gate which was quite a nice sort of metaphor i think which is um the amygdala essentially fires up and blocks the the connection because we need to kind of respond quickly in certain times i think he gives the example of you know seeing a you know a snake down the road um, we react before we even acknowledge, you know we react so quickly that um, it's even before we consciously acknowledge that we've done that um, so the resources are sent to the bottom part of the brain and that's how we've been able to survive really um, and so he says that you know that's adaptive in some cases but a lot of the times it's not necessarily useful and because the upstairs brain is incomplete and children are still having their lower parts of the brain easily triggered and that's when you have different types of tantrums. Um, So did you want to talk to that a little bit, Kay, about the upstairs tantrums and downstairs tantrums? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually thought that that was very interesting about um, the upstairs brain not being developed until Mm, mid-20s and that mm. it's actually a work in progress for children at school. I think that's really important for us to remember so yeah he talks about um two types of tantrum so he talks about a tantrum in the upstairs part of the brain as opposed to a tantrum in the downstairs part of the brain so he says you know the upstairs tantrum is when the child makes the conscious decision to throw the tantrum so this is a conscious choice tantrum and the child can stop the tantrum if they wish because they're using their upstairs brain to apply their strategy of manipulation. And what I think is really um, quite quite cute and funny is that he says, and in this situation, our response, and I think regardless of whether you're a parent or a teacher, when you have a child in front of you who is clearly throwing an upstairs tantrum that is a conscious choice, then the response to this behaviour is never negotiate with a terrorist. 
Mm. So that means that as the teacher or as the parent, we say, okay, I understand that this is what you want, but this behaviour is not acceptable. You need to stop now. Otherwise, and there's a consequence. So this is all about the upstairs tantrum is all about our response being um, implementing very firm limits mm. and making sure we follow through. Yeah, and I think a couple of points about that before we jump into strategies and you talk about the um, tantrums, the lower parts of the brain, is that I think some people interpret um, this sort of advice as kind of mollycoddling children, not setting limits. That's not it at all. I think what this actually highlights is that this sort of whole brain approach actually says that there is a time for limits, but it is about timing and knowing when you can do that and differentiating between an upstairs and a downstairs tantrum, which is very tricky for traumatized kids. Um, so did you want to tell us about the downstairs tantrum, Kay? Yeah, sure. So the down, downstairs tantrum is completely different. So the child who's having a downstairs tantrum, they can't use their upstairs brain because they're so upset and so overwhelmed and so out of control. So in a situation like this where we have this, you know, this sort of the child is so overwhelmed with, with emotion and, and so upset that they just cannot access their upstairs brain um, and basically they're, they're out of control. So the response in that um, situation is one of nurturing and comfort. So it's about connecting with the child and helping them to calm down. And if the child is unsafe, then of course that's our first priority to keep the child safe and the rest of the class and yourself safe. Um, and this is sort of the time, and I think sometimes as teachers, when we don't understand these sorts of tantrums, mm. we tend to be a bit counterproductive because we do tend to talk and we do tend to start lecturing and mm. firing the, mm. well, this is the, going to be the consequence. Um, but this is the time to be quiet. Yeah. You know, we need to stop talking. Totally. And, yeah. Mm. And for traumatized kids, a lot of the times they're in their downstairs brain, aren't they? And I think yeah. it's hard to tell the difference between an upstairs and a downstairs tantrum with them because because they're so heightened all the time and they don't very easily express how they're kind of feeling, it's really hard to pick that. And it really comes from your relationship with them, tuning into those little kind of clues about when they might be having a downstairs or an upstairs sort of tantrum. And it is sometimes about trial and error and build and mm. reflecting on that relationship. Um, and so I guess the obvious question then is how do you know when it's an upstairs um, kind of tantrum or a downstairs tantrum? Um, and the easiest one is to actually Actually, see, you know, um, uh, see how effective your response is to them. I mean, my best kind of suggestion would be is at any point um, to actually say, look, am I engaging the upstairs brain or am I actually triggering the downstairs? And, and if it is a downstairs tantrum uh, and you respond with a very firm limits, typically the child will escalate even more. It won't be a negotiation. It becomes a very agitated kind of screaming match. Mm. So you'd apply one of those strategies and really closely watch their reaction. Absolutely. So yeah. the first strategy is engaged on enrage, which is appealing to the upstairs mind, which is exactly that, is you um, moving them out of a position where um, they're kind of upset and calling your names and accusing you of things, where you just listen and acknowledge how they're feeling till you can get them into a situation where they can actually 
solve the problem that's in front of them. Um, you know, once they start talking about, yes, this is a problem, how can I solve it? Those are your little clues as to them engaging the top part of the brain. That's often really difficult because what that means is that you've got to really listen to put yourself in the child's shoes, not necessarily accuse them of doing the wrong thing, really see things from their eyes in terms of what the problem is and then kind of engage them in that problem solving. Strategy is um, use it or lose it, which is exercising the upstairs part of the brain. Um, so this again, I think Dan talks about using lots of opportunities right through the school day to give kids chances to make decisions, to be able to choose between things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sort of thing, you know, helps them really think through um, how they make decisions. So if he gives an example for very young children. This can be as simple as asking, do you want to wear blue shoes uh, or white shoes today? Or it could be what color paper do you want? And I love this because not only are you getting them to make choices, and you don't want to overdo this, obviously, but it also gives them a sense of control within um, the classroom that they do have some say in what's happening um, mm. for them. Um, and then the next one is controlling the emotions in the body. So, um, so teaching them to, you know, try simple things like, you know, take a deep breath, a count to 10 or whatever it is. So that can help them avoid, you know, flipping their lids and getting really, you know, having a downstairs tantrum. So using little moments through the day to be able to kind of prompt them to do that is often a really powerful strategy mm. as well. Govind, I think teachers naturally do that a lot mm. of the time as well. Mm. You know, we say, you know, we use gentle hands and, mm. you know, all of those types of um Mm. So I think that, yes, being conscious of those is mm. really important. Mm. And, and I think striking when the iron's core, you know, teaching all these strategies when they're not upset or not throwing a tantrum is what re- is really powerful. Um, lots of other examples. It's a really useful chapter. One of the things I find really great is he suggests all these questions um, that you can ask of the kids. And I find these really powerful questions that you can incorporate into any sort of curriculum or lesson or conversation. For example, he talks about self-understanding. Um, why do you think you made that choice? Why do you, what made you feel that way? Why do you think you didn't do so well on that test? You know, a lot of these questions, it comes down to the tone of asking it. So some of these why questions can come off as though you're accusing them of things. But if you can do it in a gentle, curious kind of way about why things happen, even as a reflection or sort of justice process, um, you can start to see that the kids start reflecting on things, not worrying about getting punished or the consequence or the punishment, you know, whatever they're going to receive at the end of it or being accused of being bad, but actually genuinely reflecting with, about what had happened with somebody who really cares about them um, and mm. has their best interest in mind. The other example he gives is empathy, about really wondering about um, how people may have felt. I think, you know, he says, why do you think that baby's crying? Uh, that woman wasn't very nice to us, was she? Do you think something might have happened to her to make her feel that way today? What I love about these examples is that it's about a third party. It's about someone external and that it doesn't have to do, you know, it's not them, you know, feeling anxious because they've just been accused or feeling ashamed because they've done the wrong thing. They're actually just engaging in kind of thought about other people and their mental states, which is kind of the heart of, uh, you know, pro-social behavior, really.
Mm. And you can do it any time, really, can't you? It's That's right. Questioning, yeah. yeah. It's easy. It's not easy to do well, I wouldn't think, but it's um, everybody's got those tools at their disposal to do it. Absolutely, and you can just imagine just you know being able to read a story and reflect on um, you know the characters' mental states and why they did it, or you know being able to watch a video or whatever it is. You know, it's all opportunities to reflect on people's mental state, which in turn you know slowly links back into um, you know how they think about their own emotions. Um, which might be a very difficult conversation to have, just speaking directly to it. Um, the uh, strategy five he talks about is move it or lose it, uh, moving the body to avoid losing the mind. Um, so he talks references a lot of the research about how physical activity can really regulate kids and integrate them. Um, so the easy way this translates into the classroom is um, having lots of brain breaks or physical activity breaks. And this is so important for traumatized kids in particular because, you know, their on-task behavior isn't, um, you know, that long. They need those sensory breaks to be able to break things up and um, refocus on things. Mm, and I think, Govind, it's important when, you know, as teachers we feel overwhelmed with such a, a packed curriculum to mm. to um, get through mm. that we don't lose sight mm. of the importance of that. I think sometimes we naturally think of that as a waste of time because mm. it's not at your desk getting the you know the true content sort of done. But um, you know it's just you know cut our nose to spite our face sometimes. Whereas if we did regular activity and mm. made sure that that was embedded into our day, it would make the rest of the day, I would anticipate, very much more productive. I think it's really making the most of opportunities for social and emotional learning, isn't it? I yes. mean, it could happen in conversations with the teacher, or it could happen during a lesson. And really, the reason why you would want to attend to this is because Social emotional kind of well-being is the foundations for higher level thought and reasoning, which is essentially what Dan's kind of getting across here is that we need to attend to the downstairs brain. If we don't, um, that we jeopardize kids learning and that if we stay just with the upstairs brain or stay just with the downstairs brain, neither of those approaches are very um, kind of useful because there's learning to be done in each of those parts of the brain. Um, and there is a risk of just staying in the downstairs part of the brain with kids where you're just, um, you know, calming them down, putting out fires and them not actually learning anything. Mm. We need to get them to a place where they're calm enough. So he finishes on the note about um, ourselves, being integrated ourselves, which is so important. Well, one of the examples, I mean, that I use in, the, in our training quite a bit is that, um, you know, it, it's, uh, we've got to help kids when they flip their lids, when they have a um, tantrum in the bottom part of their brain. Um, but I often say that often when things escalate into a crisis, it's because that the teachers have flipped their lids as well, that they get anxious about things being risky, about other kids getting hurt, about things being broken, about the child themselves getting hurt, um, which are all completely legitimate kind of worries. And the best way to be able to stay calm um, because if you have two flip-lids, that's worse than one. Um, and so the best way to be able to stay calm is to have people who can support you, people who can help you in those moments to stay regulated, to stay calm, to not have a, in a sense, a downstairs sort of episode for yourself. 
And the other way you can do that is to use some of these strategies yourself, um, which is, you know, removing yourself from the situation to collect yourself, even if it is um, just for a very brief time, making sure the students are safe, you know, repairing, you know, repairing as fast as you can your relationship with the child themselves um, and with anyone else that might have been mm. impacted by that incident, including your colleagues. Um, and I think constantly looking for, you know, opportunities for social emotional growth for yourself. I think working with traumatized kids, they really push you um, to your limits in terms of your capacity to tolerate frustration, your capacity to stay calm, um, really having a growth mindset about that to see this as an opportunity to build some of those skills yourself because um, the calmer you can stay in those situations, the more prepared you can stay in those situations, um, the more effective you're going to be in supporting their behavior and helping them learn. Great, so that was chapter three um, and that was a good chat. Okay, so thanks for that. And we'll thank you. Yes, thank you. Bye. Bye.